So when you go back to tens of thousands of years ago, there was a lot of scarcity. You know, there wasn't all you weren't you weren't getting pummeled with pleasure all the time. The problem with this constant sense of pleasure from that the games are delivering to that part of the brain is that it creates an imbalance. So you have too much dopamine, you know, being released. And if the game is removed by mom or dad, or you get a blackout or something, guess what the what the reaction is? It's a withdrawal, just like a drug addict. You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily Giles. Hi, I'm Emily. Welcome back to the Untaming Podcast. Today it is the last quarter of the waking moon here in the Southern Hemisphere. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with Courtney Armarin and Katie Danielson from the Postpartum Push podcast. I've arranged for these episodes to come out a few weeks in advance, so I'm not 100% sure yet which episode will be out next. It will either be my interview with Sterna Suisa on communication, parenting through emotional connection, or my interview with Nicholas Pino on EMFs electromagnetic frequencies. But today we have Dr. Tom Kirsting here to talk about screen interaction. Fifty year old Dr. Thomas Kirsting lives in New Jersey with his wife and two children. Tom is a psychotherapist and school counselor and is a regular guest expert for Fox News. He is the co-host of two former A&E Network television series, Surviving Marriage and Monster-in-Laws. His 2020 book, Disconnected, How to Protect Your Kids from the Harmful Effects of Device Dependency, offers a comprehensive look at how devices have altered the way our children grow up, behave, learn and connect with their families and friends. Last night he had seven and a half hours of sleep, and for dinner tonight he made homemade risotto. Tom, welcome to the show. All right, thanks Emily, I love that. (laughs) So I first heard of your book, Disconnected, maybe a year ago from the 1000 Hours Outside podcast, and your depth of knowledge on the effects of screens on children's brains immediately made me want to interview you, so I'm very pleased you are happy to join us today. I wonder if a good place for us to begin would be with a detailed look at how much screen use in general, but particularly for children, has changed over the past few decades. Yeah, I mean, so Emily, real quick, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually one of the pioneers in this in this territory. I started lecturing on this topic in 2009, believe mm. it or not, uh, about 13 years ago. Um, I outlined that in the book, how I got into this when, when I just started seeing a lot of different things happening with kids, mental health issues and so forth. Um, but, you know, nowadays, you know, really since 2012, that's when smartphones became mainstream. Um, there was already, a, you know, an issue with screen time prior to that, you know, from computer use and kids playing video games and so forth and just being on the Internet. But really around 2012 is when it really, really escalated because that's when just about everybody started having smartphones in their pockets. Mm. Um, you know, prior to 2012, around 2008 is when social media really hit hit the scene, uh, mainly just Facebook and um, and YouTube. 
you know, and that was a problem in and of itself. But once 2012 hit, uh, we, we, you know, the kids, we now have everything in our pocket, right? In the, in the size of a deck of cards, our camera, our video, our social media, our TV, mm. you know, everything in the world. The kids are spending just an exorbitant amount, amount of time, you know, in front of these screens. And it's really not just changing, you know, the way they're, they're living and how they're raised, but it's, it's, it's the catalyst behind the mental health epidemic that we now have. Yeah. And we, we've had. And I guess... Yeah, when, we, when we're referring to screen use, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, say, like watching a movie or a TV show, but there are so many other uses that we don't think of. Like you said, you know, social media. There's also just like taking photos, looking through photos, educational things, like, you know, somebody playing Wordle or doing an online class. There are so many different um, different uh, ways that we're using screens without even realizing that it's all adding up, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, the issue with that, you know, I always tell people like when I lecture all over the country in the United States and, um, you know, I start my lecture off, whether it's speaking to parents or kids by saying, you know, technology is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Um, a glass of wine, you know, a glass of wine with dinner is OK. It's not a terrible thing. Um, nine glasses of wine with dinner, <laughs> seven nights a week is the problem. And that's where we're at because the average kid spends roughly, depending on the research you see, about somewhere between eight and nine hours, sometimes more per day on average, you know, staring at screens. And, you know, the reason why that's a problem is because, you know, if our kids are just being raised and, and hypnotized and distracted all day long by a screen, where, you know, where it's not, not, not necessarily them being enveloped in the screen. It's where, are, where are they not? And mm. where they're not is here, like here in the present moment, in the now, you know, part of the, the earth, part of nature, part of the world, interacting with other people and family and so forth. So that's really the the, the main issue here, because uh, it is just so pervasive and addictive that, you know, kids, I talk about it and disconnected. They don't even know what boredom is. And mm. boredom, I refer to as the miracle growth for the mind and emotions, because it's from that quiet, you know, uh, silent place of boredom where we get to know self at a deeper level. Uh, I call it the rest of the iceberg. Um, but kids don't know what that is anymore because they're just distracted all the time. Yes, well, that was my next question. Like, it's actually important for kids to be bored, right? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, you know, boredom, you know, when we're sitting in the silence, uh, for many people that have never done that, it becomes terrifying because their subconscious mind wanders off into, you know, fear, doubt, what if this and what if that. But, you know, a skilled mental uh, mental mind expert you know, that actually embraces and intentionally enters, you know, the silence, enters boredom and sits with self, you know, every day for 15 minutes to a half an hour is going to be a powerful being because mm. they're, they're, they're uh, unearthing, you know, resources, the normal human resources within us, our confidence, our sense of self, our motivation, our self-esteem, uh, our spirit, you know, all of that stuff. But you know, if we're just sort of out to lunch all day long, drifting and distracted, you know, we don't really ever get to know self. And if you don't know self, it's very difficult to have a, a strong self-esteem. It's very difficult to have a strong, you know, mental health compass. Right. Now, I just wanted to go back to what you said before about eight to nine hours a day on average. Is there like an age range in mind there for that? Because that just sounds like so much. Yeah, well, you know, it's definitely, you know, once kid, what's what's happening when I started lecturing, I, I started giving lectures in 2009, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I worked at a school at the time and I started seeing all these issues with kids developing and, I'm, and I, you know, did a lot of research and everything pointed to technology. So when I started doing these lectures, it was back in 2009, it was specifically for the parents of high school age students. 
since that time, the age in which kids are getting their first smartphones and stuff keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier. In fact, the average age of, you know, first smartphone issuance in the United States is 10 years old. You know, so any parent, if I, you know, if I'm in lecturing in front of 500 parents, I'll say, do you think it's smart for a 10 year old to have a smartphone? Raise your hand. Nobody's ever raised their hand. Yet everybody's getting their kids a smartphone when they're 10 years old. So it's really starting, you know, at a, you know, and you see it, you know, if you go to the supermarket, you know, you go to the, you know, to get, get food and stuff. And you see, you know, two-year-olds sitting in the, you know, in the, um, in the cart and they're on their parents' phone. So it's really, it's starting at a young age. They're really being groomed into this and their brains are assimilating, you know, and get, and literally getting addicted, you know, to the stimulation that these, these uh, devices are, are offering, which are done intentionally, by the way, by the tech, tech industry. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Carla Hannaford. I interviewed her earlier in the year and she, yeah, we talked similar about similar sort of things and she was saying that her preference would be if kids could avoid these sort of smart devices until at least 14 years of age. Do you have a similar sort of age in mind when you're like, that would be, it would be yeah, better well, that's, to hold you know, Yeah, that's a question that's always asked, you know, what's the, what is the appropriate age? And the answer that I give that I actually stole <laughs> from somewhere <laughs> was, you know, when a parent asked me what, you know, um, what is the appropriate age to get my kid a smartphone? And the answer that I give is is the following. When you feel comfortable with your child watching pornography. <laughs> good answer. Very good. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. That's just the reality of it. Like these, you know, once the kid gets a smartphone and they go on, you know, any of these, you know, social media sites, bang, they're redirected. You know, their hormones are going, they're, you know, anxious and interested and they're going to click on it. You know, it's likely they're going to click on this stuff and they're going to go down in, you know, to places that we don't want them to be. So mm -hmm. the problem is it's become such a social conformity, you know, as a society that, you know, there's a pre like a built-in sort of peer pressure for parents. You know, you try to hold off as long as you can. And then all of a sudden, you know, your kid is, you know, 11 or 12. They're the only ones that don't have a smartphone. And although you told yourself, all right, I don't care, I'm not getting them one. You know, when the last when the last person standing, you know, we we kind of give in, and then you know we just follow suit and fall in line, and that's you know we have this, you know, this conformity uh, thing taking place in society, probably where you are, definitely here, and uh, you know we have to kind of reverse that and 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 change course. Right. Yeah. Now, I'd love to address a few of these different aspects of screen usage. Um, like so, first, video games. So on one hand, we hear about it causing a tendency for violence, difficulty concentrating and poor vision, that sort of thing. Yet on the other hand, we hear about it increasing hand-eye coordination and problem-solving skills and multitasking ability. So, yeah, could you address these conflicting ideas? Yeah, well, it's like Purdue Pharma when uh, OxyContin came out like 20-something years ago saying that <laughs> all the research shows that it's, uh, it's the most uh, non-addictive substance there is. So it really depends on who, you know, the literature reading that you're reading and who's writing it and you know are they being you know paid by big tech and stuff like that mm -hmm. um you know so it's it, again it's not that tech is bad but but here's what's happening right so with video games in particular and i have a new book coming out in february it's called raising healthy teenagers equipping your child to navigate the pitfalls and dangers of teen life mm -hmm. and i and this is some newer research that i, that I came across where when i'm talking about i do talk a little bit about video games in particular so the way these games are designed the, uh, the 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 design of apps and of video games, they actually hire psychologists so that they can target the the part of the brain, the pleasure seeking part of the brain that produces dopamine. Right. So the way video games and even you know social media apps are designed now, 
is that there's this part of our brain, right? Um, that reduces, I'm sorry, that releases dopamine. And it's the same part of the brain that that's consistent with every form of addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling. And when our kids are playing these video games, they're getting this constant uh, dopamine drip. And why is that a problem? Let me explain. So we have something known as in the brain uh, called homeostasis, and it's the brain's natural way of balancing itself so that you don't get too much pleasure and not too little pleasure. So you get the, the, you know, the perfect equilibrium. So when you go back to, you know, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, there was a lot of scarcity, you know, there wasn't all oh, you weren't, you weren't getting, you know, uh, pummeled with, you know, pleasure all the time. Mm. The problem with this constant, you know, uh, sense of pleasure from that the games are delivering to that part of the brain is that it creates an imbalance. So you have too much dopamine, you know, being released. And if the game is removed by mom or dad, or you get a blackout or something, guess what the, what the reaction is? It's a withdrawal, just like a drug addict. And I see this, that's a whole nother thing I'm seeing now is kids as young as 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, behaving in oppositionally defiant ways. Like I've never seen before at my private counseling practice, the things that are coming out of their mouths, you know, towards their parents. Um, and you know, the, 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 aggressive, you know, tactics that they're often taking, I've never seen before up until recently. Um, and it's consistent with exactly what I just mentioned, that imbalance of dopamine, you take it away and boom, you have that withdrawal and you have these, you know, crazy outward, you know, emotional and physical reactions. Huh. Can you give us a few more examples of what these withdrawal symptoms are like to recognize? Yeah. So, yeah, so I'll get, I'll give you a perfect example. So. You know, my private counseling practice, I'll get calls from parents. Hey, you know, so-and-so referred me to you. I have a 12-year-old son. He's, you know, you know, aggressive, blah, 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 blah. Kid comes to my office. Nicest kid you've ever met. Like almost every case, very polite, you know, very nice, very even keel. Um, but what you don't know, and, you know, and that kid's friend's parents will say how nice Johnny is. He's such a polite young man. But what they don't know is that in Johnny's bedroom, and I've seen this many times, is like a dozen holes in the wall. Because one of the parents, the kid got in trouble for something or, you know, didn't do well on a test or forgot to do his homework. And the parents take away either the phone or the video game system. Johnny loses it and goes berserk and breaks things. And this is a common thing that's occurring right now, which is consistent with that withdrawal, that dopamine withdrawal that I just mentioned. Wow. So it is. It's Yeah, this is a, this is a whole new thing, Yeah, you know, um, that you're not hearing about yet, but you're going no. to. Because I guess it's like uh, you're putting in that tendency for violence, but not necessarily from playing violent video games. It's more the dopamine withdrawal that is causing that yeah, reaction. Yeah. Is that right? I, and I do, yeah. And I do think you know. I'm glad you brought that up, Emily. I think it's also the latter. Um, mm -hmm. you now, if you look here in the states, right? There's, I mean, there's just there's like you know, I've been I'm 50 years old. I've been living here my whole life. So there's always something happening, like in the news, a violent act of some sort, right? So let me explain how the brain works a little bit. So the way our mind works, if, if kids or adults are watching, you know, violent video games or violent videos, and nowadays every single thing is caught on camera, like on every street corner, plus everybody has a camera in their pocket from their phones, every act of violence, every murder, every mugging, every carjacking is now caught on camera. And it immediately funnels right into social media, immediately, like right away, bang. And, you know, the more exposed that, that human beings are to anything, the more we become desensitized to it. So 
you know, like, for example, if you hate flying and you're terrified of it and then you're forced to have to get on a plane after you've done it enough times, you're no longer terrified. And if you're, you know, watch, you know, the first time you see some violent video, you're skeeved out by it and really affected by it. But then it just keeps coming more and more and more and more of it. You become desensitized to it. And I think that's one, you know, part of the reason why, you know, you see a lot of people committing, you know, acts of violence and stuff because their brain no longer looks at it as being like this like awful, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask about social media usage next, but I'm also curious to hear about um, your thoughts on finding the line between casual use and addiction. And I guess that is in reference to social media as well as video games and that sort of thing. Yeah. So again, you know, social media, like I have Facebook, right. Um, and so forth. I ha- I do have some other stuff, but I don't really ever post anything. So myself as an example, like I, I look at, for me in my profession, Facebook is my, is my uh, psych- psychology laboratory where I can, I can go on there and I can kind of like not judge anybody, but I could see, I could read people and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it all the time, people posting every little thing, every detail of their life and so forth. You know, look at this vacation on, look at this beautiful filet mignon I made. And it's sort of this like become this like bragging rights thing. Like, look at me. People are just craving to be noticed. They're craving for attention uh, and they don't even know they're doing it. Now, you take a young adolescent or pre-adolescent, you know, they're, they're already in a vulnerable stage of development. Just the state, the state of adolescence where they're trying to they're changing hormonally. They're trying to figure out who they are and where they fit in. So they're looking to be noticed, you know, so it's really it's like the the, the weapon of uh, mass destruction that's being handed to our kids, because instead of just developing naturally through that difficult transitional phase from, you know, childhood into adulthood. And, you know, I look weird and you know my voice is changing and I wonder what people think of me, all those insecurities that you naturally navigate and grow, you know, into a, an, an adult. You know, now we got this layer of the social media layer that's been, you know, plopped right on top of that. And kids are spending all their time on this social media. They want to be noticed. They want to be recognized and so forth. But it doesn't do anything for self-esteem. Like I, I, when I'm doing my lectures, I give an example. When the important word in the word self-esteem is the word self. Because self-esteem is how I feel about me. It's not how others feel about me or how I think others feel about me. But that's where what kids are wrapped up in now. And they don't even know that it's happening. Um you know, so you don't, it's hard to develop a true sense of self if everything is predicated on the outside world and what I think other people think of me and so forth. So really, it's it's actually, I call it so, uh, social media self-esteem. Um, and it's another thing I that, that leads to what I call acquired anxiety disorder, because these kids are getting all anxious, you know, constantly. Mm, yes. And I like that you used your own social media use as an example, because, you know, it's kind of hard to restrict children's use when adults and their parents are also addicted what what's a good way to recognize this sort of anxiety what acquired anxiety in in ourselves yeah well you know so but but before we get to that like you know one thing like the first tip i always give to people is you know the parents because everybody's looking for answers like what do we do here is Mm. we got to practice what we preach you know so we're downstairs and we're just glued to our computer or social media site constantly we're you know modeling that behavior for our children and we're severing the parent-child relationship without even knowing it's happening Yes, exactly. And what what would be some examples of, like, I guess, being constantly tied to our phones, interrupting conversations to check it, or jumping when it buzzes, those sort of things that... Yeah, kind of- yeah. Yeah, we're all guilty of that, including myself, believe it or not, you know. Um, and I'm the one that wrote the book on it. So my phone will go off on the just now. I looked at my phone, you know, like you just caught me. 
Um, (laughs) That's what happens. It's that they're here, they're on our person constantly. And it's like, I think inherent in us that, wow, you know, somebody's, somebody wants to talk to me or somebody's texting, holy cow, you know? Um, But it's, you know, the big, the big issue, particularly with kids, middle school age kids and high school kids is, um, you know, the big trend that's been going on for several years now is that they are literally spending almost all of their time when they're at home by themselves in their bedrooms. You know, Mm. they may be engaging with other people, you know, or going on TikTok and going on social media and this and that, but they're, they're sort of removed from the family unit. And we're kind of allowing that as a society. Yeah. You know, I always say like bedroom starts with the word bed, you know, and bed means, Hey, go to sleep. Right. And then we also have another room in our homes called family rooms. So what I, you know, one tip I give to parents is you got to get your kids out of the bedroom and into the family room more often. Yes. And I guess that has its own set of issues when the bedroom becomes the place where they're, I don't know, doing all their screen things yeah. and it's interrupting their sleep and affecting things. Oh, big from, time. Yeah. From that big perspective. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole nother thing, Emily. Um, you know, the, the, right in here in the States, um, sleep, there's, a, there's actually a sleep deprivation epidemic among kids where sleep centers are bursting at the seams. Because, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I retired, I did 25 years as a high school counselor. You know, and I had my private practice simultaneously after school hours. So two and a half years ago, I retired from the high school and now I'm doing the full-time private practice, right? On my own. But the two to three years prior to my final year there, I took a poll of kids, high school students. Um, you know, the kids would come down to my office all the time just to talk and, you know, they, you know, get out of lunch and so forth. So uh, I, I, I polled about a hundred kids that trusted me and I, and I asked them the following question, but you know, with my door closed, I said, listen, you trust me. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Just answer it. Honestly, it's not going to leave this room. You have my word. And the question that I posed was what time do you go to sleep at night? And 90 something out of the hundred told me honestly that they went to sleep between one and 4 AM every night of the school and that their parents had no idea. Oh my goodness. Yep. And that's because their phones are in their bedrooms. Like yeah. any rational parent knows it's dumb to let your kid have the phone in the bedroom, but then suddenly our it happens and our kids are now calling the shots and that phone's in their bedroom. We go to sleep and then we think they're asleep. And what do they do? And they get their phone right next to them on their bed. And it's because they can't put it down. That's that FOMO, that fear of missing out. And kids are relinquishing their sleep you know, because of this interaction with their phone and social media and whatever that whatever else they're doing on that thing. And, you know, take just, you know, remove everything we've already talked about, you know, anxiety disorders and all this other stuff. Just the sleep deprived part is enough to trigger, you know, major mental health issues. Because it's yeah. a tired, exhausted child is a non-functioning child that can't do well in school, can't be in a good mood, you know, and it's a, you know, an everyday endeavor. Yeah. So this was high school age children, is that right? Yeah. 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 Wow. And are they I guess they're not even they don't even have the opportunity to make up for that sleep any other time because if it's five days out of the week at least, it's just constantly yeah, piling yeah. up. No, exactly. And I've, I've you know, I've dealt with many kids, you know, that they come home from school and they, they go right to sleep. They come home from school and they're so tired they go to sleep for like two or three hours or more. You know, even during like during COVID, you know, COVID, the whole COVID lockdown was like the worst possible thing that could have ever happened because now the kid's bedroom 
didn't just become the place where they sleep and you know communicate digitally with their friends. It, they're, they're, it became their classroom, everything else. They're, that was it. They were like living in these bedrooms by themselves for like two years. And, uh, you know, we're seeing the repercussions of that right now here in the States, big time, because the mental health and suicide rate has just gone even more berserk. Uh, even kids, the social skills with kids, the communication skills from the lack of human interaction has been stunted. All kinds of bad things. Yeah. Yeah, that is an excellent segue into my next question. I wanted to hear more about this effect of COVID and this now now that screens, yeah, once screens became like a constant sort of educational device as well as a pleasurable device as well. So I wanted to know your thoughts here. Yeah, so I'll tell you my my personal experiences, um, you know, as a therapist. And in the new book, I, I cover quite a bit of this, actually, the book coming out in February, Raising Healthy Teenagers. So I noticed, you know, early on, well, not early on, but, you know, within the first year of COVID, I was working at my office, you know, I was allowed to as a, an essential worker. Um, so people were coming in in person. I was also doing some, you know, teletherapy and so forth. But the uh, the amount of um, anxiety, the elevation in anxiety among everybody for that, for the most part, but I do, you know, mainly with kids was, was, um, was mind boggling. And, you know, basically that, that prompted me when I was writing the next book over the course of many months, you know, to kind of do some research. And, you know, what I came across is pretty, it's actually makes sense when you really think about it. So human, when you take a human being, right? So we are uh, social, emotional beings. So it's sort of embedded in us to be out and about, you know, connecting with other people, socializing in a face-to-face manner and so forth. That's what normalcy is, right? Um, but once that was removed and kids were, you know, unintentionally just, you know, kind of buried in their bedrooms by themselves, you know, they might've thought everything was fine. You know, they could FaceTime their friends, play their games, do their school and so forth. But when, when the world, you know, started to open up again, what I started seeing was that a lot of kids, uh, even those that did not have any you know, pre-existing minor anxieties were developing serious anxiety disorders. Um, and the reason being is that their the, the anxiety is basically a physiological response to thought, all right, uh, to something either, you know, something that we fear or something that's unknown. Um, and what, what, what seemed to happen is that normalness, you know, going to school, playing sports, hanging out with your friends was no longer um, the norm. It became the unknown. And when it came back time to kind of return back to that, kids had gotten so accustomed to, you know, the, the I guess the safety that their body felt from being in their bedroom that now leaving there and going back into the real world was triggering, you know, legitimate, you know, anxiety and panic responses. Wow. That's just the way it is. You know, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not comfortable with something and anything that we're, that's kind of unknown to us, even if we've done it and that we're now uncomfortable with, you know, we, we get some anxiety about and, you know, so schools right now, particularly this year, are really, they're going to be, they're going to have their hands full with, um, you know, with kids that have school avoidance and school phobia issues. Yes. Yeah. I can see that. Now, it made me think of what you were saying. You said at the beginning about how one glass of wine is fine. Nine glasses is, you know, not okay. <laughs> what would be a, yeah, what what would be the a more ideal use of screen usage for for children but also for adults like what what would be more acceptable yeah. and tolerable yeah so the you know so there's some guidelines out there the american academy of pediatrics they have their guidelines you know they recommend 
you know, zero hours per day for kids under the age of two. One, I think it's one hour a day for kids between the ages of two and eight years old of total screen use. That includes the combination of TV, you know, the laptops, everything else. Hmm. And for anybody over the age of eight, eight and above, they recommend no more than two hours per day. Right. Now that sounds pretty ambitious. Um, you know, and that it, it does, uh, but that's what that's what the recommendation is. You know, and the, you know the issue is, uh, you know, if all of our time is you know in front of a screen, all the screen time, you know, what what are we not doing? Like I think back when I was a kid, I was outside constantly because that's kind of all we had. You know, running around the neighborhood, so we were getting you know green time. Now kids get screen time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And see, I think of like with my own kids, they're young. They're what six and nearly four that I've noticed um, they don't have a lot of screen time, but I've noticed that when they watch something, if it's a fast-moving thing, they get very, very upset when it's time to turn off. But if it's a nice, slow, sort of relaxed show, then they're more okay with it. So, yeah, I wondered if you could address this different type of stimulation. Yeah, I'll give you another example that just came to my mind. So my my older guy, my oldest son, he's 19, he's a sophomore in college, and I remember just going back, you know, 12, 13 years ago, let's say, mm-hmm. um, I was coaching baseball, little league baseball. And I remember I played baseball. I played in college and all that stuff. And I remember, uh, when I was in high school, freshman year, 120 kids tried out for the baseball team wow. right? back in 1980, September, uh, no, no, 1987, right? 120 kids. Now they could barely get enough kids to even, <sighs> you know, to fill a team like it, it, in a lot of high schools and stuff. And it starts and I noticed it you know, just when the kids were young. So a sport like baseball, there's a lot of sort of standing around. The ball might not get hit to you. You only get a four, you know, three or four at bats during a whole seven inning game. So there's so much downtime that kid, a lot of kids, what I noticed that start playing baseball quit. They quit playing and they play other sports that are more on the go. And it's because I believe that their brains have been so wired from constantly being stimulated, you know, from screens and everything else that downtime drives them crazy and they just don't know how to handle that. So they go on to other sports. So that's my theory on it. I don't really have anything to prove it, but I, I can't imagine why it would be wrong because I just remember coaching and these kids just, to them, it was the most boring thing in the world. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, kids do not know how to be bored and, and avoid being bored like the plague, yet it's probably the best possible thing there is for their mental health and they don't know, and they don't know it. Yes, that makes me think of, I was just reading a book this morning, just a fiction book, but there was a sentence, I was like, oh, this seems relevant. It was that waiting was a skill learned in boyhood or never learned at all. And I was like, huh, that sort of, that patience. Oh, yeah, patience and and we, you know, our whole world is now a world of instant gratification, right? You hit a button, bang, there it is, you know. Oh my God, I want to, I want to buy this. Boom. There it is the next day on your doorstep from Amazon. Oh, I'm hungry for pizza. Bing, bang, boom. You know, here's the DoorDash guy. You know, see, everything is at at our fingertips and and we're not patient. And, you know, and I think there's, it's kind of created a, um, you know, a culture for a lot of young people of um, they're so used to getting what they want when they want it, that if something doesn't go their way, they have a hard time handling that. Yeah. And I think this leads in nicely to like a section of your book is dedicated to acquired attention deficit disorder. So yeah. Can you talk about this? Yeah, well, that's actually how this acquired attention deficit disorder is how I got into this topic. And it started, it was in in September of 2008. I, when I was working at the high school, I ran a committee called the 504 committee, which handles, uh, 
you know, kids that have certain disabilities and stuff, and we provide accommodations. And, and I see for the first time, you know, we had a parent come in and, you know, their son had been recently diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, uh, you know, a 14 year old. And I remember thinking, wow, that's weird. I've never seen that before. You know, how did this kid fall through the cracks? Because the average age of diagnosis for ADHD is uh, eight years old. And if you have a child with ADHD, you can't not notice it by age five. So I was mm. a little puzzled by that. And then the following week, we had another parent come in requesting accommodations. Same thing. And then long story short, that school year, almost every referral that came to us was for kids, teenage boys, mainly that had recently been diagnosed with ADHD at the age of like 14 or 15. So that's when I really started researching, like what the hell's going on? And everything started pointing to screen time. And the fact that the way the brain works, being a very malleable piece of machinery, you know, the brain will literally, if it's engaged in anything highly stimulating for three hours or more per day, it will rewire itself. It's called neuroplasticity. It'll mm. actually grow new neural pathways, those electrical impulses, and will and will assimilate to that environment and it will unadapt, you know, to its natural habitat. So basically, what what you know, based on the research, what got me into this was that we had these kids that were wrongfully diagnosed with ADHD. Instead, what they had was a brain that was always stimulated. And now they go in the classroom and that brain is looking for stimulation and doesn't know how to focus on the teacher. And you check and now that you check off all the boxes for ADHD. And you have a kid diagnosed with ADHD and in many cases put on medication that, and doesn't even have ADHD because it's something that you're born with. Um, it's not something that you get. It's a neurological condition you're born with. So acquired ADHD, that's the the loose term, you know, uh, according to the research I've done for a lot of kids, roughly 70%, it's estimated, teenagers that are diagnosed with ADHD that don't actually have it and the doctors don't even realize that. Huh, so this neuroplasticity that, you know, helps helps to lead to this acquired um, attention deficit disorder. Is this reversible? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, if you take, um, yeah, that, yeah there, there lies the problem. So even these kids that are having, you know, these um, outward verbal and physical reactions, you know, it's, you know, roughly it, it's going to take about 30 days. You know, so let's say you had a kid that's just, you know, is, you know, gets diagnosed with ADHD when they're 14, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, they're just, you know, uh, disorganized all over the place. If they were to have their screen time removed for them, removed from them completely, for about 30 days, the brain would would now come back to the planet Earth and be able to focus and concentrate again. Yeah, that's, to me, that seems remarkable that it's only only 30 days. Yeah, yeah, that's just you know, based on, you know, some of the science that I've, that I've researched. Um, yeah. You know, but that's that's the way it is. You know, the brain, like I said, is very malleable and, um, mm -hmm. you know, it will adapt to, you know, to any environment that, you know, it spends the most time in. Yeah. And, yeah, talking about that malleability, what about the multitasking ability of children? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, that's that's another thing. Kids, adults, we're, we're kind of shuffling back and forth, you know, from one, you know, type of media to another simultaneously, you know, watching television and then checking our text messages and then listening to music, you know, we're, we're, we're dividing our attention among different levels. So, you know, and if you ask, and I have some examples in the book, Disconnected, of, um, and if you ask somebody who's, you know, a chronic multitasker, you know, they'll, they'll kind of boast about it and be like, yeah, I'm really great at this. You know, I'm really good at, you know, shuffling around and, you know, navigating from one thing to the next. But the research shows that the higher the level of multitasker, the more lousy you are at multitasking because you really can't multitask. 
the, the, the human being is only capable of doing one thing at a time. That's how the brain works. You can't do two things at once. <laughs> so uh, you're saying that once you start doing multiple things, you're not doing any of those things particularly well. Yeah, they're they're actually being weakened and watered down. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting to know. Now, I'm curious about the difference in the brain engagement with a screen compared to concentrating on a task or a book or something else for a similarly extended period of time. Yeah, you know what it is? It's um, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of almost hypnotic in a way. Um, so is reading. Though. Like when you're somebody staring at TikTok and all this other stuff, again, it's you are in a believe it or not in a hypnotic trance. Um, but the difference between reading is although you're in a hypnotic trance, it's not you know, that same level of stimulation. I mean, it's stimulating reading, but it doesn't have that same impact because it's not like, you know, like, like drugs are like, like this, this digital stuff. It's like digital drugs. Um, you know, so reading is very healthy. Even TV isn't, isn't really all that bad, you know, because it's, because it's more peripheral. Like you could watch TV and you know, what's going on around you. When you have your phone in front of your face, you're just like completely locked into that. You have no idea what planet you're on. Um, and the same with video games. So, it's it is it's a different it, it's a different level of stimulation you know like reading is stimulating but it's not considered highly stimulating like the bells and whistles of video games and social media and, and it and you know it doesn't create the same level of arousal you know i mean it does create arousal you know if you read a good fiction book but not to the same extent hmm. yeah. it's kind of like you know i guess i guess you would kind of uh, a good a good example would be like it's the difference between a fire hose and a garden hose ah uh, yeah I see what you mean. Nice. Now, I'm curious about the change in uh, like cortisol levels and therefore, you know, stress levels through screen usage. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's all there. Um, you know, well, I mean, I don't really discuss that in the book, the cortisol stuff, but, you know, it's it's just clear when you look, you know, at the amount of individuals, you know, with anxiety issues. So a perfect example is as follows. So I, like I mentioned earlier, I worked for 25 years, you know, in a high school and, you know, prior to 2012, you know, so I started in 95, I think. Right. So prior to 2012, you know, I would have, you know, maybe a couple of crises a year where a kid has an emotional meltdown or panic attacks and so forth. And I'd have to address it after 2012, it started to you know, really escalate. That's what, again, when smartphones came out. The last three to five years that I worked in a high school from 2015 to 2020, I had more referrals from the nurse's office for a kid just having an emotional anxiety or panic attack. I had more per week than I used to get per school year. Whoa. Yeah. And even at my private counseling practice, starting at around that same time, I was starting to receive more, more referrals from middle school age kids with major anxiety. I would get more of those referrals per week than I than I had gotten the previous fifteen years combined. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just too much. It's just brain overload. You know, it's it's a, like the perfect storm. You get this overload of content, and it's getting worse and worse. You know, it's just fear mongering. You know, every news outlet, every bad thing that happens, that I call social media the tailpipe of the mainstream media. But kids are on these things, and their brains are just getting bombarded twenty four hours a day with fear stuff. You know. And this is during, you know, very already difficult developmental stage, you know, of pre-adolescence and adolescence. Yeah. Now, I'd, yeah, I'd love to know what would be your takeaway points that you'd want parents to be aware of for recognizing their own 
usage for modeling behavior as well as some simple guidelines to set for their children like for example what you said about um having a smartphone when you're prepared for them to watch pornography that sort of thing yeah i mean you know parents have to you know they really they need to do their research they really should read my book um and you know and lead not follow um and furthermore you know one of the one of the main issues now in society is because parent you know adults are spending as much time even a little more than kids in front of screens yeah um there's very little you know there's very little interact parent child interaction taking place in fact you know in the book i give an, i give a citation um you know with it's in a you know with an actual citation from readers digest um the average parent nowadays only spends three and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation with their kids and that's because there's no, you know, in, here in the States, at least, you know, when I was growing up, you know, dinner with the family was mandatory every night. There was no, it was at the same time every night you have dinner, boom, it was part of our culture. And now that's sort of dissipated. It doesn't, it, it's not as, as common, you know, that in just the dinner table alone and even car rides. I talk about that in the book. Like when, when you, if you, you know, drive your kids to school and you look at a rear view mirror, when you, you know, pulling into the school and there's traffic, you'll see that the, there's usually a child in the passenger seat and their head is down and they're on their phone. So even like the five minute car rides to school, you know, have been relinquished to smartphones. And, you know, we need to step up. Parents need to step up and make, you know, make you know, and ask and, and make it, you know, um, you know, make it, um, you know, mandatory that their kids aren't going to be on their phones during the car rides. Well, we're going to talk. <clears throat> we're going to communicate because over time, you know, 180 days a year, it all builds up. It's the most important thing for our kids is communication and connection with their parents. Yeah, I like that. Very good. Now, where would you like people to find your book? Well, uh, yeah, well, the book can be found anywhere, you know, wherever books are sold, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, it's called Disconnected, how to how to um, protect your kids from the harmful effects of device dependency. And then, you know, the next book is already up for pre-order on Amazon. It comes out in February. You can order that now. It's called, mm-hmm. like I mentioned earlier, raising healthy teenagers. Um, you know, so it's all important stuff, and uh, you know, it's, I'm just out here trying to do my duty. Great. Well, yeah, I'll put links in the show notes to you, both of your books. Is there anywhere else I can send people who want to learn more about what we've talked about today? Like, hopefully, your website. We talked about that before. Yeah, we'll yeah. Be up and running again. Yeah, yeah. My web, my website. Yeah, it's right currently broken. Some or it's been been being worked on for a while now. So that the web, but that'll be up again. It's tomkirsting.com. And then you know, if you just Google my name, there's like ton, you know, I've been on, you know, a million TV shows over the years, you know, national TV shows t- giving advice and commentary. So you can see some of that stuff on like, you know, NBC, Today Show, Fox News, all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of stuff related to these topics I talked about today. Great. Well, Tom, thank you so much. This is a conversation I'm very pleased to have had as I believe it's something as parents we need to be more actively concerned about. So thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Emily. Now, my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? All right. Give me one second on that. I want to think about that. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. See, it's going to be a very short sentence, right? And this is just so important, right, for kids. And it's this. Now, it's very deep, but it's simple, but deep, which only I won't get into. And this is what it is. Be yourself. Yep. You stay, to, you stay true to that. You be yourself. And the only thing that's going to come is good. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.